You're listening to Pod Suey, the week's top stories served a la carte. Subscribe at thegreatvoice.com or wherever you get your podcasts. So did you catch the gubernatorial debate on Thursday night? Don't worry, not a lot of people around here did since none of the local stations were carrying it. WJR was carrying it and Guy Gordon breaks it down. Hopefully you see you saw the debate last night. I talked to so many people after I got off the air and into the evening. I was at an event who said they just were so frustrated that it wasn't on local television. So hopefully if you didn't see it, you heard it here on News Talk 760 and you've been able to form an opinion on it. It was really Tudor Dixon's coming out party in so many ways. I will got I got to tell you, I came in with skepticism. She was hyper prepared. She was in command of the issues. She was fast on her feet. She never missed an opportunity to exploit what I thought was one of Whitmer's weak points. So she she made the most of her opportunity. Here's what I want to know from you. What did you think of the debate? A. B. Did you really find it that useful? Did you learn more about these candidates by watching it? Yeah, it was a great scrum. And yes, there was punching and counterpunching. And, and, you know, if you're a partisan who's already made up your mind, maybe you liked it that your candidate got some good licks on the other one. But did you really learn anything that helps you make your decision? I got to tell you, I, I saw a lot of finger pointing. I saw a lot of backbiting. I didn't see a lot of forward thinking. So I want to know what you think about it. If you didn't see it, we've got some highlights for you because I think it really will help you. A, um, it will confirm what I'm saying about Tudor Dixon. She was in command of issues. We expected that from Governor Whitmer. We know she's a good debater. She was a prosecutor. She knows how to how to command a room. Um, but she has a record. That works to her advantage. She's also made some mistakes. That works against her, especially if your opponent opponent points them out. Rick Albin did a, what I thought was a really smart thing, the, the moderator from WOOD-TV. He asked them, look, we, we, we've all heard what your positions are on abortions. But what is your compromise factor? What's the red line you won't cross? Where might you compromise? What limitations are you willing to consider? I'll leave it up to you whether either one of them answered that question. Let's start with Governor Whitmer. She won the toss. Cut five. The only reason that law is not in effect right now is because of my lawsuit stopping it. When Roe fell, Mrs. Dixon celebrated that. She said it didn't even go far enough. She said she wanted to make abortion a felony, no exceptions for rape, incest, or health of the woman, and throw doctors and nurses in jail. That is too extreme and too dangerous. Now that's Governor Whitmer basically saying, yes, governors do matter. I filed the lawsuit that kept that law in effect. Actually, it was her and Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood has has managed to get, I think, more ground covered than she has. But she's making an effective case saying, look, governors do matter in these in these things. Here's Ms. Dixon's rebuttal. I've never said that I wanted to criminalize people. I've never said I wanted this to be a felony. She just is completely making that up. My position on abortion is clear. I am pro-life with exceptions for life of the mother. But I understand that this is going to be decided by the people of the state of Michigan or by a judge. As the governor's already stated, a judge has already ruled in this case. Please understand that the governor doesn't have the choice to go around a judge or a constitutional amendment. She will lie to you tonight and tell you that the governor can do something about a constitutional amendment. But you need to understand that it's very, very clearly written. And you should understand her position. It's extremely radical. It's abortion up to the moment of birth. 
She's an effective communicator. She went right to the point. She drove home her point in that rebuttal. Here's the problem. A, governors do matter, Ms. Dixon. Otherwise, we wouldn't be considering you in the first place and your pro-life credentials. B, she's right. She did. You can file suit. And there are going to be a lot of lawsuits after that constitutional question is decided. Um, And we should point out that, yes, she supports a 1931 law that would make it a felony. A doctor could be sent to prison for up to four years. She has said time and again she supports that law. She has publicly vouched for it both on podcasts and elsewhere. So quick fact check on that. Rick Albin went back at them again and said, yeah, but what about that limitations question I ask you? Will you accept, Governor Whitmer, limitations to your position? Cut seven. Are there any limitations, Governor? Rick, my lawsuit would have preserved the status quo with the limitations that are on the on the books right now. The legislature wouldn't enact it, and that's precisely why we are going to the ballot now. Thank you. Your rebuttal, Mrs. Dixon. She's clearly stated she has no limitations. She doesn't even want parental consent. That's what the proposal that she's out there talking about every single day says. She's lying about my position. And I can see why she's a little confused about a constitutional amendment, because this is a governor who time and time again thought she was above the Constitution of Michigan. In fact, the people had to go to the Supreme Court to try to rip her powers away, even though she held on to them like grim death. This is how she's going to treat the people of Michigan. It is not how I will. Great, great um, exchange. Uh, Good scrum there. Neither one of them. Neither one of them showed any sign that they're willing to compromise. For those of you like me that say, look, at some point, this is going to have to be legislated. We're going to have to find some middle ground here. Like every other nation that's dealt with this question, neither one of those candidates was willing to budge. So what are they going to do as governor on this when they may have to compromise, when they may have to reach the middle? They don't want to let us know. Uh, Rick Albin asked them on Prop 3, will you accept the will of the voters. Here's Tudor Dixon. I will always respect the will of the voter. I don't believe that there are laws that I'm above. Unlike the governor here who said on multiple occasions, if there's a law out there that I don't agree with, I think I should be able to go around it. And Dana Nessel, who has also decided to go around laws. I don't believe in that. I believe in our Constitution, and I believe in the people's right to decide. So unequivocal. <clears throat> but listen. If Prop 3 passes, and we know Prop 3 is flawed in a number of ways, I think what she said there is she's not going to challenge it. She will accept the will of the voters. Listen to Governor Whitmer. This is a classic yes, but answer nine. Well, I'll always accept the will of the people, Rick. But here's the fact but, of the matter. I but, still have but. a lawsuit that's pending in front of the Supreme Court. And so ultimately, that too will have to be decided. I think it's really ironic when Mrs. Dixon stands here and says that she will accept the vote, the will of the people. This is a candidate who still denies the outcome of the 2020 election. This is a candidate who will not pledge to accept the outcome of the November 8th election. Do you want a Governor Tudor Dixon to challenge Prop 3 if it's passed? Or do we just accept it with its flaws? Or should it be challenged in court on a number of fronts? Um, when it came to the economy, and I thought this was a really good question again from Rick Albin and, and his, his viewers. He said, look, we got $7 billion in the kitty right now. Um, and w- should we spend it? Should we save it for a rainy day? Or should we give it back to you, the taxpayers? Tudor Dixon, cut 14. 
I want some of it to go back into schools, to harden our schools, and to make sure that our kids are getting caught back up. Now, i got to tell you, I think that was a missed opportunity on her part. Um, why wouldn't you say cut taxes, cut the taxes? We've given her three different cut tax, uh, tax cutting proposals and Whitmer's vetoed all of them. She missed an opportunity there. But listen to this exchange between Whitmer's view of the economy and Tudor Dixon's cut 15. Governor Whitmer. Michigan's economic recovery is the fastest than any we've seen in our history. We have one of the strongest economic recoveries in the country. We know that we are seeing small business growth that's outpaced any year that we've seen in the last 23 years. We've made record investments when it comes to securing the future of the auto industry here. General Motors, $7 billion building batteries. Ford, Stellantis. Now, part of that is true. But why have we created so many jobs? Why have we bounced back with more than other States, because you dug us into a deeper hole. And Tudor Dixon seized on that moment. Cut 16. The report came out today showing that Michigan is in a terribly slow recovery. In fact, we've lost more small businesses than any other state except for New York. We're tied for losing the most small businesses. We've also lost 82,000 jobs while Gretchen Whitmer was in office. And she hasn't saved the automotive industry. She's only trying to save face now because she knows Ford left and went to Kentucky and Tennessee. And when she was asked, her response was, I think we didn't know. Governor? (laughs) That's ridiculous. Yeah, no, all those reports are out there, Governor. They're there in black and white. Studies have shown that our actions saved thousands of lives. Now, 35,000 people in our state have died from COVID. They may not matter to some, but they matter to me, every single one of them. If I could go back in time with the knowledge we have now, Sure, I would have made some different decisions, but we were working in the middle of a crisis and lives were on the line. I thought that was a, an interesting admission, and I thought it was honest, and and uh, I appreciated that from her. And she's right. Some studies say you saved lives, but there were also consequences and costs to that, which may have been unnecessary had you done things differently. Uh, and Tudor Dixon wastes no time prosecuting Governor Whitmer, the former prosecutor, on that score. Cut 20. Well, the governor wants you to believe that she did listen to the experts, but we have the letter from the Nursing Home Association that said, whatever you do, don't send COVID-positive patients into nursing homes. And yet the governor did. When Andrew Cuomo even backed off of this, Governor Whitmer doubled down. She even tried to hide the final report of the numbers of how many deaths we had. In fact, she's tried to hide a lot from this pandemic. She tried to hide, or she did hide effectively, why her Department of Health and Human Services director left. In fact, she even paid him off with a secrecy agreement. The same with unemployment. What a debacle to have eight and a half billion dollars fraudulently sent out. Now I've got people bringing bills from the state up to me, begging me to forgive the unemployment that she's trying to get out back because she accidentally sent eight and a half billion out. And what about our students that she kept locked out of schools and wouldn't listen to parents when they begged her to let them play? Let them play. She wouldn't even listen. Like I said, she did not miss an opportunity to try to exploit a vulnerability or weakness that uh, Governor Whitmer's record uh, may contain. Uh, And and let's make sure we give uh, Governor Whitmer a chance to rebut here. Cut 21. Here are the facts. While my life was being threatened for making hard decisions to save lives across our state, 
Mrs. Dixon was spreading conspiracy theories. Mrs. Dixon was downplaying masks, saying that this would go away without getting vaccinated. She said kids couldn't get COVID. Had she been governor during the pandemic, thousands more people would have died. A lot of those deaths would have been in our nursing homes. She, she did say, Dixon did say, quote, our kids are not at risk for catching COVID-19. Uh, she also stated, quote, you heard so many people saying that this is not a virus that affects the young students. So in a July 2020 episode of, of uh, her uh, show, America's Voice Live show, she did say those things. That was fact-checked uh, by our friends at Bridge Michigan. Tudor Dixon recaps and analyzes her first debate against Gretchen Whitmer with Tom Jordan and Kevin Dietz the morning after on All Talk. Welcome back to the program. You know, it was about as good of a debate that one could expect, in my view, and it was really the first real chance for a lot of Michiganders to see Tudor Dixon side by side with Gretchen Whitmer as they're both hoping to win the seat of the governor of Michigan on November the 8th. And Kevin, I do believe that there were probably a lot of people who watched last night probably thought to themselves, hey, this Tudor Dixon is not who I was told who she was by these ads that are out right now. And I think uh, a lot of them are just thinking, i, I got to think about this a little bit longer before I cast my vote. I was a little bummed out that so many people had to listen last night because the local TV stations yeah. didn't put it on. I was right. upset about that. It was on the radio stations. It was on the website. It was a lively debate, a good debate. The two candidates toe-to-toe, which made it very clear how differently the two candidates see many of the issues important to us. We invited both candidates from the debate to come on this morning. Challenger Tudor Dixon accepted and joining us this morning right now. Good morning, Tudor. Good morning. Thank you for having me. Uh, nice job last night. How do you feel about the debate? Are you happy with your performance? Are there some things you did not get to say that you wish you had? I am happy. I am. I, I feel like the momentum has really picked up on the campaign. We got a lot of great messages last night from people we knew and people we didn't know saying, wow, I'm really glad that you stood up for us. I'm really glad that you were able to say this and and make these points. Now, we did get some folks that said, in the next debate, please talk about this. Please talk about that. And I think it's interesting because you have so many people that in so many different ways were harmed by choices she made, vetoes she made. Her choices consistently hurt different groups in the state of Michigan. And they're reaching out to us and saying, be our voice because nobody is holding her accountable for this. I mean, one of those examples last night that I talked about was The vetoes to parents who want to adopt, the vetoes for funding there, the vetoes for funding to pregnancy centers, the vetoes for funding for pregnant women who need safe housing. I mean, just really cruel vetoes. And people are saying, why is she doing this? Why is she making these choices that hurt families? And then standing up there and saying that she's concerned with families, that she's the governor for families, because her actions tell a very different story. I was surprised how much time was devoted to the issue of abortion, which were the first two questions. Inflation did not even come up until the second to last question. How did you feel about the format and the questions? Did you feel it was fair? I would have liked to see more on economic development and economy in general. And I understand their format is to take questions from the viewers. And I'm glad we got to talk about the truth about abortion, because obviously she's tried to frame the race about abortion and tried to say that, you know, my position will be the position that will be the case in the state of Michigan, which we now have been able to say, no, look, the people are going to decide this. Either the people are going to decide this or a judge is going to decide this. And a judge has already made their position clear. 
I want to make sure that we have as many protections as we can. I mean, what she's talking about is so radical. Have You don't have to be a doctor to perform an abortion, an abortion up to the moment of birth. If you're a minor, you don't have to have your parents come in and give you permission to have an abortion. And let's remember, this is truly her stance, because she's on the record as a senator voting against a ban for partial birth abortion. When she says, I'm extreme, here I am out there saying, I think it's up to the people to decide. What she's saying is, I want the most radical law in the land. And she's vetoing funding to women who need help. This is insane. Her position is extreme, and she doesn't want to talk about it. In fact, I'll point out that Rick Albin twice said to her, I want to know what your limits are on abortion. And she would not answer that question because she has no limits. She has the most extreme view in the land. But I would have loved for us to get to talk about economic development because she's out there saying that she's retaining the automotive industry. Give me some evidence. What is she talking about? She gave $101 million to one of our automakers for 3,000 jobs, and they promptly laid off 2,000 employees in the state of Michigan. We have, we, we have not seen the 3,000 jobs get created. I mean, and now is it 5,000 jobs now that they've laid off 2,000 people? And then she just gave hundreds of millions. We're about to give $715 million to a Chinese corporation to bring a battery plant here. Why is she holding up actual developers in the state of Michigan and giving over $700 million to a Chinese corporation with very clear ties to the Chinese Communist Party. This is a desperate move for a governor who has had no economic development plan whatsoever and is now at the last moment grasping at straws that other states don't want to bring into their state. And she's saying, look, we're going to create 5,000 jobs over these two plants. And when asked in the in the last week, when she was asked, well, when are those jobs coming? She said, um, some of them will be soon. No, the truth is those jobs are promised over the next 10 to 20 years. And we're going, going to give hundreds of millions of taxpayer dollars to corporations that have connections to the Chinese Communist Party. And when asked when she was planning on giving money back to the people, she had no response. Mm. She's vetoed twice an option to return to reduce the personal income tax in the state of Michigan. And she stood on that stage four years ago and said she'd get rid of the pension tax. What what happened in four years? Mm. Yeah, she did veto quite a few. I think the most vetoes, in, you said last night, in 70 years. Uh, I think the moderator, Rick Albin, uh, did a great job last night. But when the issue of inflation was brought up, he prefaced that discussion by saying the governor has very little that she can do to fight the cost of living in the state. Do, do you agree with that assessment? I don't agree with that assessment because the governor can not only do, she can not only give money back to the people and try to offset the cost of inflation, which we were seeing in other states with gas tax holidays and reduction in taxes, but she can also protect our energy sources and she's not. And that to me is such a big deal in the state of Michigan. This governor is trying to impact your costs even more because she's trying to shut down line five. Look, we just saw in the news that the cost of heating your home in Michigan is skyrocketing. The cost of heating your home without line five, the question is even whether you could heat your home, even whether people are safe if she shuts down line five. We're the largest user of propane in the entire country. That comes from line five. 
That's how 65% of our homes in the Upper Peninsula are heated. And she's talking about shutting it down, and no one's holding her accountable to that. That is going to be the biggest cost increase, but it's also going to increase the cost of gasoline, the cost to fill your tank. And if you're increasing the cost to fill your tank, well, the minute any product comes into the state of Michigan, that price is going to go up because the cost to move it just across the land is going to increase. And this governor has not stepped in. She was offered a gas tax holiday and veto again. Of course, the veto pen is her favorite pen. Vetoed that. Hmm. Are you concerned that too many people have forgotten what life was really like for I don't know, two years of Whitmer's administration under these lockdowns as a direct result of her orders to shut down the state through 2020 and much of 2021. As I've traveled across the state, I don't find that to be the case. I think that the governor has forgotten. I think she has done so little traveling around the state that she has not seen the truth. And and let me remind you that when she does have an event, it's invitation only. So it's only people that are going to come and and sing her praises. She's not hearing the alternative voice. So when we travel around the state, no one has forgotten. When I go into towns across the state of Michigan, I see closed sign, closed, closed, permanently closed. Mm. And in some cases, closed for three days a week because they can't afford the cost of food. They can't afford to have, they don't have enough employees to even come in. She is ignoring the fact that while other states thrive, when you, if you cross the border, you see people in shopping malls, you see cars everywhere. Michigan is becoming a ghost town across the, the entire state. We now look at Lansing. Lansing at five o'clock when people leave, it's a ghost town, and and it's only yeah. it's, it's somewhat of a ghost town beforehand because mm. she sent most of state government to work from home. Yeah, she did. Um, and we appreciate you joining us. Uh, Tudor Dixon, GOP gubernatorial candidate. Thank you, Tudor. Aaron Call, director of debate at the University of Michigan, gives the academic point of view of Thursday night's debate on the Paul W. Smith show. Well, I hope you watched the uh, or listened on WJR to the debate last night. I thought it was uh, uh, very important. But I know that these things, it's like pulling teeth to get people to to pay attention to them. You've made your mind up, or you don't care. That's even worse. But uh, I think it was worth seeing. Um, for, for one thing, uh, other than on our show uh, most recently, we never have heard from Tudor Dixon. We've only had Tudor Dixon described to us, defined uh, for us by the Whitmer campaign. They did a great job on that, and she was silent for a very long time. Uh, I got cut two here. I don't know exactly what the cut is, but it says... Dixon talks about herself, so this might be one of the first times she is actually telling us about herself in her own words. I'm a mom, I'm a wife, I'm a cancer survivor, and I'm a worker. I used to work many hours on the shop floor of a steel foundry, and I've owned a small business that was crushed by lockdowns in this state, like many of you. I also know what it is to have my children locked out of school and then have to try to get them back on track. All right. That was uh, useful. Uh, probably information that a lot of people uh, were not aware of. Uh, we know Governor Whitmer through her service. Uh, and, uh, you know, people have had their ups and downs, but have short memories. If they were really angry during the pandemic, a lot of people were frustrated. Now, uh, in hindsight, people are reacting a little uh, more gently, I guess, is maybe one way of putting it, because they believe that they're Looking forward, there's lots more that needs to be done. Um, 
Governor Whitmer did talk uh, a little bit about what she would have changed in Cut 19, Brian, of of what she might have done differently had she known today what she knew back then on COVID. 35,000 people in our state have died from COVID. They may not matter to some, but they matter to me, every single one of them. If I could go back in time with the knowledge we have now, sure, I would have made some different decisions. But we were working in the middle of a crisis and lives were on the line. You know, someone said earlier they they thought that was a shock and a surprise that she did that. I give her credit for admitting, and who wouldn't after going through this, where we we didn't know anything, and and our national uh, helpers and international uh, were wrong. So, uh, you know, giving a a little slack there to the governor uh, appears to be the right thing. Now, the director of debate at University of Michigan probably has strong feelings about how it went last night. I'll defer, at least partially, to Aaron Call. Aaron, welcome back to the Paul W. Smith Show at WJR. Well, it's great to be back with you. Give me your analysis as a director of debate at U of M, uh, an analysis of last night's uh, gubernatorial debate. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's always a, a strong debate, good performances from both sides. I was glad that we were able to to see the debate where we're not getting, you know, kind of the traditional debates in some of the other races in the state. I think both um, candidates were, were well prepared and kind of had their uh, the points they wanted to get across and some, you know, zingers uh, prepared. And so it was very hard fought over the hour. And I think, um, but yeah, it was kind of maybe gone to a, a draw or both, you know, did well. But in, in that kind of instance where it's a really close, good debate, it's probably going to you know, favor uh, the incumbent who has uh, at least a, a slight lead in the race and um, didn't think the governor made any kind of major errors that would maybe reset that. But um, I thought it was great and look forward to the um, the next one in a few weeks before voting concludes. You know, I, I'll, I'll go along with what uh, our producer, Ann Thomas, said earlier. And though the governor didn't make any, like, glaring errors, she did look a bit taken aback uh, flustered a little or surprised, I guess. I'm not sure how to describe it. At the strength that Tudor Dixon came at her with, you understand what I'm trying to say? Yeah, no, I think that's I think that's fair, and that's kind of typical in these races. Um, you know, the governor Whitmer hasn't debated in uh, you know four years since uh, against Bill Shooty back in 2018. Uh, Tudor Dixon participated in five uh, primary debates and was very strong there. Anytime incumbents kind of get back into the debate game, they're a little bit out of practice. Um, anytime you share the stage with your opponent, it elevates them. Um, and it, it kind of takes uh, them a little bit to get back. The very famously, 2012, uh, President Barack Obama had a really poor performance against Mitt Romney, uh, but again, improved for the final two debates. And um, you, it takes you a little bit of, of time, real time, to actually you're not used to kind of you know people questioning you and going toe to toe with you, so so no, I think that you're correct there. But it's um, you know does happen in these kind of circumstances, just given all the different dynamics. I'll, I'll tell you, I I suspect nobody else pays attention to this other than maybe other talk show hosts. But I'm going to say it because he deserves it. I thought the moderator from Wood TV, who we'd had on our show yesterday, Rick Albin, I thought he did a marvelous job as a moderator. What do you say? You're the professional here. Yeah, no, I, I agree with that as well. Um, he you know, has a lot of experience with this. He uh, moderated one of them in 2018 and did a, a primary one in this cycle. Um, you can tell he really takes it seriously and prepares, um, kind of you know showing you all the uh, the notes and the, the different questions that 
exist and um, really doesn't want to make it about himself, kind of the, the issues that the voters have. And I, I thought in this uh, debate, something he really did was incorporate the actual words um, and you know, snippets of video from the candidates themselves. Much more effective when you know, the candidates uh, know that questions are coming directly from the voters and that they played a small part in, in the debate. So making that direct connection, I thought was very effective. And I, I hope that more debates do that in the future. Yeah, I think uh, absolutely uh, you're spot on, I believe, on that one, Aaron Call, And I I think the way he brought the people in with their questions using video, because he had it, uh, was very effective. And uh, and I also think that he never, even for a second, ever lost control. Now, that goes as a nod to the governor and to Tudor Dixon, because they they didn't cause a situation where he looked like he was losing control. They were well-mannered and did a nice job, as have you, Aaron Call. Director of Debate, University of Michigan, thanks for your expertise. Anytime. Take care. All righty. Democrat Michigan Supreme Court Justice Richard Bernstein is running for re-election, and he talked to Tom and Kevin on All Talk. It's on the ballot uh, this November. In addition to what we've been talking about this morning, the gubernatorial race, we are picking some uh, Michigan Supreme Court justices. Don't forget, these are very important races. Uh, there are two seats up on the state's highest court with two incumbents and three new candidates trying to get those two spots. And we're planning to have each of the five on our program right here. And it's hard to believe, Kevin, that it's been eight years already since these two seats we're filled with these two candidates. Yeah, we're excited. We are going to uh, have uh, all five candidates for those two spots on the show over the next several days, next several shows. You will uh, hear from each of them. And we're going to begin with Richard Bernstein, who is an incumbent that is proud to run on his record. Good morning, sir. How are you? Hey, guys, it's great to be back. I'm just excited that you guys had me back. Of course we're <laughs> going to have you back. Tell us, uh, tell us what characteristics make you a good Supreme Court justice. Ah, it's a great question. I think at the end of the day, there's really one quality that goes into being a Supreme Court justice. It's your life experience. And I think from that life experience, it's the notion of living with struggle. Anyone who lives with struggle understands what it means to really serve in this position because you're doing it for the right reasons. And when you live with struggle, it allows for you to have a better understanding and appreciation of the challenges and the hardships and the difficulties that those who come before you have to confront each and every day. You were nominated by Democrats, but you say that you are very independent. What rulings have you made on the state's highest court that shows you are independent? Oh, my God. I mean, we could go through a list. And I think that's really the most important quality, right, is, is that even though I'm nominated by the Democrats, I think what I really am known for is being the crucial swing vote on the court. And I think we can look at a number of cases like that. I think if you were to look at redistricting, that's a perfect example of that, where ultimately I was the deciding vote when it came to redistricting to making sure that the redistricting committee was open and transparent for public inspection. And my vote was the kind of the critical, crucial vote that allowed for people to understand and appreciate how these decisions were ultimately being made. You know, it's interesting. I, I, as I go back and kind of look at it, you know, 
all these cases, you know, that I've had, I've been the deciding vote on so many cases. But I think what it really comes down to is when you ask that question is, is that some of the opinions that I'm kind of the most proud of is I was asked to write the Flint water decision. And, you know, when you have a chance to write an opinion that affects 150,000 people and make sure that they actually have a voice and that they are heard and that they matter, that's what makes this job so worthwhile. But then on the flip side, going to your question about kind of being that independent vote, I also was uh, the one who wrote the opinion that basically um, ultimately dismissed the charges against all of the Flint officials, including the past governor. And the reason I wrote so strongly on that was that I had grave concerns with the one-man indictment process that was ultimately used by the government in that in those cases. And so I felt strongly that those were charges that should ultimately be dismissed because when you're dealing with a situation of a one-man grand jury, that's not what our founders intended, and it went against really the cornerstone and crux of really our criminal justice system. I mean, so those are just a few examples, but I can also, you know, give you many more examples and many more to come. But I'll give you one really quick one, mm-hmm. was dealing with the gubernatorial. Do you remember, it was just a couple months ago, dealing with the ballot issues sure. and the issue as it pertained to the Republican candidates who were ultimately kind of kicked off the ballot for the whole signature issue. And that was a really interesting one because I wrote an opinion on that because I felt very strongly that ultimately those folks should have had their day in court and they should have been able to present testimony and have a chance to come before the Supreme Court to make their argument. And the reason I felt so strongly about this, why these folks should not have been kicked off the ballot. Now, keep this in mind. I'm a Democrat advocating strongly for the Republican folks to be on the ballot. And the reason I was so concerned about that was because I was worried about the burden shifting and that ultimately I really feel that the court created a problematic precedent where now there's a burden shift. And ultimately, whose burden is it? Is it the burden of the candidate to show that their signatures are valid? Or is it the burden of the government to show that the signatures are not valid? And I always believe that the the impetus should always go, the onus should always go to the citizen and not the government. So I think it should be the government's burden to show that the signatures are not valid, not the candidate's burden to show that the signatures are valid. So those are just some quick examples. But that's why I love being a judge, because you get to make decisions like this. And that's what this institution is all about. Well, we, those are two great examples because both those cases had tremendous pressure uh, on the seat in which you sit. And I think it's important to note that these are nonpartisan seats that are on the high court, but you're all nominated by a political party. Sometimes you're appointed by a sitting governor. But that being said, can you remind voters how you personally interpret the state constitution? Because it sounds like those decisions were based on that, which is supposed to be the case. Is it a strict reading of the Constitution or more of as a living document that should be viewed in the relevance of the times in which we live? I mean, that's such a great question. I mean, you're basically asking about my jurisprudential philosophy. And I would say that when you ask that question, it's a really good one. I say the way that I define myself is really, again, I really focus on that independent nature because I think independence is absolutely critical. And I think, you know, when you kind of look at this, you know, the person, it's interesting, you know, one of the people I was really close with on the court who I miss since he's retired, but a person that I'm proud to call 
call one of my absolute best friends is Justice Steve Markman. And the reason I always share this is because I'm just incredibly fond of Steve Markman. And people are always like, well, wait a minute, how is that possible? Because you tend to be a little bit more progressive and Steve tends to be, you know, a lot more conservative. But yes, we're the, we're the best of friends. And the reason that I have so much admiration for Justice Markman is because he was intellectually honest at all times, right? So he and I would get together and we would talk about these court cases. We would talk about these decisions. We talk about kind of the intellectual nature that kind of goes into how you make a decision. And we talk about our different philosophies as it appeared, as it approached the law. And the greatest thing about Justice Markman was because he was so incredibly intellectually honest, if you were able to converse with him using that intellectual structure that he used, which is he tends to be a little bit more libertarian conservative, but if you're able to kind of focus on the structure that he uses in terms of how he guides his interpretive message, then ultimately it was amazing because you were able to, you know, you could be persuasive. So there were many cases where he and I would talk and we would talk using the interpretive model that he would use. And there were often cases where basically I was proud to say that he would come away and say, you know what, Richard, I'm going to vote kind of, you know, in, in, in the direction that you're going based on our discussion. And then there were often many cases where, you know, based on the way that he would approach a case and he would say, look, Richard, you know, this is your jurisprudential philosophy. You're always been focused on transparency. You've always been focused on independency. And, you know, you might not like, you know, the results of this case, but in order to conform with your jurisprudential model and your approach to interpretive, you know, ways, and what people have to realize is that, you know, there's always big cases that hit the Supreme Court, but we have 25 cases every single week, Mm. every single week, there are 25 cases. So what folks have to always remember is it's not necessarily just these big cases that we're always focusing on. It's these 25 cases every week that really affect people's lives. And I'll just point to one that this is why it was such a, why I love Steve so much is because, you know, there were many cases that he would come to me and I would kind of, you know, shape my opinion based off of our discussion, because that's what intellectual honesty is about. That's what it means. That's what it represents. But there was a one case in particular where it was a very close vote. And, you know, I sat with Steve and we talked about it and he said, you know what? He says, I'm going to vote with you. And it was an absolutely critical vote because it was a case that involved two young men who had been convicted of murder. But, you know, I genuinely believe that they didn't do it. And ultimately, Steve and I were able to really discuss these issues, discuss this case. There was a lot of issues that were kind of at stake in that as it pertained to the procedural posturing of the case. And that's why relationships and that's why intellectual integrity really matters, because I'm proud to say that we got that additional vote. And as a result, those folks, those two gentlemen were freed from prison. That's why this stuff it's amazing what you have to deal with. You you pay attention to all the the, the other cases. We'll we'll pay attention to the big ones. 
<laughs> we appreciate your time very much. Uh, Richard Bernstein, Michigan Supreme Court Justice, uh, November 8th, running for re-election to the High Court, Michigan. Thank you very much. Republican State Rep Kurt Vanderwall, running in the 102nd District, went on All Talk Wednesday to talk about his plan to bring down the price of insulin. Yeah, you know, we know this. Inflation is brutal, and a lot of us are looking at that steak at the butcher salivating, but the price increase, whatever, is 15 bucks a pound or whatever. Uh, at least for me, it quickly changes my mind and I, I move on. But there are some things we cannot do that with, and that would include medicine. You know, pharmaceutical prices are really through the roof. They have been for a long time, very expensive. And insulin is among those drugs that are very expensive and absolutely necessary for the survival of those who have uh, diabetes, Kevin. So there's been a long-term effort to try to reduce the price of insulin. And one of our state uh, reps here in in uh, Michigan, a, a Michigan lawmaker, has plans to do that. He's been working on this, one of our senators, for quite some time. Yeah, Tom, insulin is pricey for diabetics. And when people try to find out why it costs so much, they don't really get many answers. So one way to possibly find out is to make insulin here in Michigan with companies that we know and trust. Could that lead to drastically reduced prices? Well, one local lawmaker thinks so. Senator Kurt Vanderwall from Ludington has talked to two drug makers hoping to produce new versions of insulin as early as 2024. And he joins us now. Good morning, sir. How are you? Well, good morning, guys. How are you today? Good. Appreciate you coming on and talking about this. It's uh, on a lot of people's minds. Uh, you, you are having these discussions. What are you learning? Well, I, I will tell you, I have learned so much about insulin and the uh, your bureaucracy of what it does to, to drive the cost up. And we know that one in four uh, citizens right now rations their insulin because they can't afford it. And we know that the health outcomes of you ration insulin um, are usually not good. So we're going to do everything we can right now to bring that production into the state of Michigan. And our goal is to reduce that cost uh, in that $60 or below range per month and save uh, our citizens here in the state about uh, $9,000 a year. Let's get into that bureaucracy a little bit. What are what are the things that you're finding that are, that are boosting the cost so high? Well, unfortunately, in the our country, we have uh, what they call PBMs, which is a pharmacy benefit manager. And what they do is they'll go to the pharmaceutical company and say, if you want to have your insulin on the formulary, this is the price that you have to charge. And then you tell us what your rebate is so that we can grab part of that profit, but you'll be on this. So what they do is it just continues to drive the cost up because the pharmaceutical companies want to sell their product and they'll do a deeper rebate so they're on the formulary. And it just gets confusing and it, it gets to be, um, I'm just going to call it a game that costs us as citizens of this country and our state a lot of money. It seems like it also makes, it costs a lot of money to actually uh, produce insulin. It's not easy. A lot of the manufacturers are clearly out of state, Utah is one area, and then Pennsylvania. I'm sure they'd like to keep those efforts there. Uh, what are some of the production challenges of bringing these manufacturing facilities here to Michigan? Well, first you have to have a, a facility um, that can house the, the plant. And we know that in the initial stages, we would like to be able to purchase the raw material from them already, already um, made, and we would put it into the the delivery device. So that was the injectable style, if it was a pump style. 
Um, and eventually, we would like to be able to move that production here if we can feasibly do that. But it costs a lot of money. Um, it has to get FDA approval. And this is something that with these organizations or these companies right now, we know that they're in the final stages of approval. And we're hoping that if they they can get this done in early 2023, we'd actually be able to have Michigan set up and ready to roll in 2024. And uh really start passing on the savings to everybody yeah that's coming up fast that that would be fantastic news um what are if this doesn't go through let's take a worst case scenario that this doesn't happen are there other um options alternative actions that we can uh hope for here in michigan to bring down the cost because i think what is it what's the average a month for a a diabetic patient is like 400 a a month and up if we can bring it to 60 that's quite incredible yeah, it runs four fifty, basically four fifty three to eight fifty five a month. With the majority of them being at the higher mark, we also know that we have probably about three hundred thousand people in the state of Michigan that need to be on insulin that are not right now because they they might not be quite to the level that they need to be or in the severe part. But we're looking at one point two million people. Hey, if you know if we're going to work really hard, and I believe that the direction that we're going and we saw what the governor did last week monday with her executive order i think the the pressure is on for us to be able to get something done and what we've worked on with uh, some of these companies throughout the country and we have more now that that uh, have stepped to the plate here in the last several weeks we're going to have an opportunity one way or another to get this done and i do believe that the ultimate goal is to bring that cost down into that $60 below range. It may be 100 to start, but you know what? We're going to get it going, and we're going to save people real money uh, for the right reasons and bypass some of this uh, uh, stuff that happens that we don't want to see happen in our world when it comes to pharmaceuticals. So how, how does producing insulin in Michigan save money? Would local distributors bypass the uh, PBMs, these pharmacy benefit managers? That's exactly what I'm looking at trying to do is that if we produce it here in the state of Michigan and we sell it to Michigan citizens, we don't have to go through the pharmacy benefit manager because we don't need to be on a formulary because we're actually running the program. Um, And we can distribute it just like we do any other drugs that happen. There's people that can get it to the pharmacies. And once we get on, uh, you know, there's there's all kinds of options here. in the long run to save customers money. And uh, I believe that if things are going the right direction, that these costs will continue to drop and we can just be one, we'd be the only state that really has a program running by 2024 and delivering the needs and the, and the product that uh, will help our citizens. Is there a lot of support that you're receiving from local or Michigan based health systems? Yeah, actually, Everybody is very interested in to see what the final product is going to look like, which, of course, because, it, the, you know, um, the details mean everything. But everything that we're working on and what we've talked with people, there is huge support because they all know ultimately this is going to save, you know, lives. It's going to save other outside health costs that come if somebody has to go on dialysis. Um, so the outcomes will be huge and very positive. So. You know, I think there could be so many things good that happen out of this that I'm 
I can't tell you how excited I am to be involved with with the, this process, and it's been a whale of a learning curve. I bet. Uh, we're out of time, but does this same problem exist with other drugs uh, other than insulin? Could the same thing happen down the road with other drugs? I believe that there's opportunities if the state of Michigan makes this work and we really see the results working. I think that the door is wide open for the state of Michigan to be a leader, and it certainly will be my goal as long as I have an opportunity to to work and to make influence on this, that that should be our number one priority for the citizens of the state is a healthy Michigan. Well, we we applaud your reference. We hope it all is successful in the end here. Uh, Thank you for your time and explaining the state senator, Kurt Vanderwall. Thank you, sir. State lawmakers are looking at an initiative to clean and repurpose old landfill sites for redevelopment. Republican State Rep. Mark Tisdell, running in the new 55th, is one of the legislators spearheading the effort, and he's on All Talk. It's uh, 1-800-859-0957, 800-859-0WJR. We want to get your calls in a moment. Just hang in there. But this conversation we're about to have has to do along the lines of something we have discussed in recent days and weeks regarding transparency. Uh, we just realized and uh, came to our attention recently that $100 million Uh, just approved by the Michigan legislature that will likely help clean up a landfill in Rochester Hills to make it reusable for development. It sounds good. It sounds like it would be a a very needed benefit. Uh, The city of Rochester Hills also seems on board with this. But it's who is likely involved in getting the money that is raising some questions. Questions are fine. They're okay. Bobby Shostak is the former chair of the Michigan Republican Party and his company is the one that is priority, I guess, in the funding to move forward with this project. And not only that, Kevin, this Showstack, uh, these projects of his have already received this kind of funding from Michigan in general in recent years. I think the past five years, this would be the fourth if he gets it. Well, let's get into it. One man's trash, another man's treasure. Yep. You know, the state rep has secured $100 million to turn trash-filled landfills into something the community can be proud of. Uh, is it a good use of taxpayer dollars? Uh, our next guest says yes. Joining us now is Mark Tisdell, state representative out of Rochester. Good morning, sir. How are you? Uh, good morning, Tom and Kevin. How are you this morning? Great. Good. good. Appreciate you being on. Tell us uh, tell us what the, the game plan is, what this $100 million will do, generally speaking, and, and what's going to potentially happen in Rochester. Well, earlier in the, in the year, we the legislature and the, the governor signed into law a new um, strategic outreach and attraction, attraction reserve fund, or the SOAR fund, and it was meant to be put into place to attract uh, like the kind of, uh, you know, battery facilities and manufacturing facilities that we lost uh, uh, to Kentucky. And you look at what they've done in Ohio with it, with the, the attraction of the Intel uh, microchips plant. So this this fund was set some time ago, and this is exactly uh, the kind of thing that it's that it's meant to do inside of the SOAR fund or the strategic Um, uh, uh, fund our dollars available for site readiness. And that's exactly what we're going to be doing here. I was first elected to the Rochester Hills City Council in 2011. This has been a priority in Rochester Hills for for at least the decade that I've been involved. Uh, Up and down Hamlin Road, you know, there there are national and international companies doing multi-billions uh, collectively 
in uh, uh, business all over the world. And right in the middle of it is this 100-acre dead spot that uh, is not of our doing. It's not Rochester Hills trash and chemicals that were that were buried in there. That 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 goes back to the 1950s. So it really is a regional issue, and deserves some regional and state help in cleaning up. Our legislature and our governor have not agreed on very much the last two years. What makes this different? Why why is everybody on the same page in your opinion? Well, for one, I, I I think again what we were discussing, like the the blue city or the blue facilities, the blue oval facilities, moving down to Kentucky, and we don't want to get caught with that kind of uh, uh, lack of preparedness again. And then when you look at this particular site in Rochester Hills, as I indicated, uh, you know it's up and down a strip. It's it's right at M59 and I75. The location's perfect. There's 368 high-end apartments going in right across the street that had its own $15 million uh, landfill cleanup, illegal landfill cleanup there. And it's it's the kind of place where auto suppliers, high-end, high-tech development wants to occur. Um, the, the investment in this 100 acres will generate an immediate return uh, there are landfills that need to be cleaned up, of course, all over the state. This is in a high-demand area with little or no industrial or commercial vacancy. And and uh, th- this piece of property, once cleaned up, will, will sell in a heartbeat. Yeah, and I, I know it's been sitting there since, I think, the early 2000s, and it's been trying to get some type of developmental use out of it. They tried a number of things, it seems like. So we understand that aspect of it and probably the necessity of what this will be uh, turned into. Uh, but the question, the elephant in the room, is that it's a Bobby Shostak property, his developments, and his developments in recent years have received quite a bit of support, some Michigan State funding that supports his other project. I think there's you know, 15 million in one of them in Salem Township, I think in total 35 million. And then this allocation, which would directly benefit Shostak again. And again, he was the chairman of the Michigan Republican Party. Explain how that happens, because if there isn't anything wrong here, we'd like to know that if there is some concern, I think questions are already being asked. Can you address that uh, that aspect of this? Well, the elephant in the room was very clever with the, of course, that's the GOP symbol, but um, I've never met with the show stacks on this while I was on city council or, or, or since I've been in, in state government. Of course, uh, I, I think the, the mayor of Rochester Hills has and, and has discussed this at, at length with them. And part of it could be that maybe the show stacks just own a lot of, a lot of these types of properties that, that need assistance or need development around the state. They've taken that kind of chance. Uh, th- that I don't know. But when we put money, you know, we put this $100 million into the SOAR fund, and part of it is for uh, strategic site readiness, there, there, some developer or developers across the state are going to benefit. In this particular instance, Again, that's been approved by the House, the Senate, and signed by the governor. Uh, in this particular instance, it happens to be uh, uh, Bobby Shostak that is one of the partners in this uh, consortium of business- businesses. 
Yeah, and so I, I guess, I mean, these questions are being asked. The Detroit News put out a, a pretty in-depth article investigation into this, you know, the $1 billion being awarded to a variety of projects around the states. And the uh, implication is that because it's done, so to speak, in the dark of night, there's not enough transparency in how these decisions are made that these questions end up being asked. To prevent these questions from being asked um, from people like me, uh <laughs> Wouldn't it be better to have some better transparency protocols in place so this doesn't have to be, um, these implications don't have to be uh, in place? Well, that that very well could be true, Tom, and, and, and it is implications. And, of course, it always makes for a good story when you try and connect these kinds of dots. And, and Beth uh, LeBlanc actually did a very nice job, I, I think, with the Detroit news story. Mm-hmm. And, 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 and it does, you know, it does raise some eyebrows. But again, this is, this is something that both the House and the Senate agreed on. Um, uh, the, the governor signed it. I, I don't think the governor would purposely go out of her way to reward, uh, you know, a, a former GOP party uh, state chair if you know if she thought there was funny business behind it uh, uh, and it's not guaranteed how much or any of this money will 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 go towards True. this project yeah. we're hoping that a significant portion does yeah because again the roi on this is going to be rapid and very real. Yeah, and it, there's, there's a lot of this, and it happens very quickly. And uh, we just appreciate your explaining to us. Mark Tisdale, State Representative out of Rochester, thank you so much. They'll look for this week's Pod Sui Voter's Guide. Keep it tuned to AM760, WJR, and thegreatvoice.com all election season. See you next time.